Blog Talk Radio. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea with Scott Martis. This is Julie Wrench. Uh, we appreciate you guys tuning in. We have a very exciting show with a, a special guest coming into the studio. But right now, I'd like to go ahead and welcome back to the show Scott Martis. Hey, Scott. Hey, Julie. How's Our it going? guest today, good. Our guest today is a frequent guest, uh, Max Hawthorne. And Yay. Max wants to talk today about, first, the reason for plesiosaurs having long necks and the function of that. And the second half of the show, we'll be talking about the sensory pits on the ends of the snouts of theropod dinosaurs and the giant crocodile dinosuchus. Hello, Max. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Great. How are you? Oh, good. What's up, Max? I'm not gonna, hi, Julie. I'm not going to get upset, upset that you guys didn't give me any kind of big fanfare, you know, welcome, like, you know, all these credentials and the best-selling author. Right, like stuff award-winning like book author and uh, world-class Yeah, I, I know. Once you become a frequent flyer, all you get is miles. I understand. <laughs> but I'm happy to be here. Shameful. So... This, uh, these two blogs that we're going to be talking about are on your new website. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. If you want to mention that with chronosrising.com. Oh, yeah. If anybody wants to check out the new, the official site, it's either chronosrising.com or maxhawthorne.com. They both, uh, you know, go to the same place. But, yeah, the, the new site is really spectacular, very popular. Everybody comes to it. And, uh, yeah. I don't want to go harp on that because, you know, I'm sure we've got a lot to cover and all that. People go in there, they can, they'll can they be able to see it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, you performed some experiments to try to verify this idea you've got about the plesiosaur necks with uh, long-necked turtles. Yes. Actually, I have you to thank for that, for mentioning the snake-necked turtle, um, to be honest, and also your uh, comrade-in-arms, Charles Pogan, who actually keeps these animals as pets and who uh, mm-hmm. Charles was invaluable in terms of collecting footage that actually proved the theory to be legitimate. I mean, you know, well, it, it, it's a very common-sense theory, but practical application really takes any of the guesswork out of it. Charles is actually going to be our next guest on the show. Well, that's awesome. Hmm. I'll make yeah. sure I, I'll, I'll definitely tune in for that one. But, uh mm-hmm. 
We, we did, um, I mean, there was a press release following up the article. It's, this isn't like my first foray into this. I mean, originally I did a piece on Please These Were Next, I think it was around three years ago, uh, a very popular article that was read, gosh, I think like 60,000 times or something like that by readers. But, uh, and basically the, the notion being that uh, you see these animals, you know, the, the, the plesiosaurmorph body type with the small head and the long neck, uh, some of which are extreme. I mean, you have a, a neck that's, you know, approaching the length of the body. You have some elastomosaurs that actually have a neck that's even longer than their body. It's like way out there, almost like a fishing rod, which uh, yeah. I guess is a fitting analogy. And over the, you know, 100 years since the first plesiosaurs skeletons were found, I think it was Mary Anning, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. But uh, they, paleontologists and the public have always theorized what these long necks were used for. You know, you got to look at them and think, well, there's got to be a lot of disadvantages to having this giant neck out there. You know, when it comes to swimming, is it vulnerable to predators like mosasaurs or pliosaurs, things of that nature? But what was it actually used for? And I, I read a lot of theories out there, some of which were interesting, some of it which were a bit of a stretch, get it, stretch, you know, the neck, stretch. Mm. Uh. But, uh, so, I mean, these theories ranged. I mean, the most basic one when the animals first discovered is everybody thought the neck was as flexible as a snake's body is. So they could coil it, twist it, turn it. They could sit on rocks and, like, lash out, boom, snatching fish that were passing by. This is when, you know, yeah. And then, obviously, as more work was done, research on the skeletons, et cetera, the range of motion, obviously, was a bit more restricted than that. So you come up with these other things you see. I mean, some people were imagining that they were burying their face in the bottom in the muck and the sand and stuff, feeling around for food. Um, somebody said, I think, they, they stored food in their necks. And somebody even said that they had, like, organs in their necks, they believe, like an electric eel to shock and stun prey because they were so slow they couldn't, I guess, catch their own food. You know, you, you have all well, the favorite stuff. One thing oh. that affects the range of motion in the neck are the neural spines and transverse processes on the vertebrae. They especially block movement in the vertical range. Well, I think that would make sense if this is an animal that, you know, according to the, the theory I put out, um, used its long neck to pursue shoals or schools of fish and mm. pluck off the ones in the back. It would need the neck would need to be more flexible in terms of the horizontal flexion, like making like a, a slight S, let's say, like a northern pike yeah. does when it gets ready to pounce. You know, the pike's body curves into a slight S formation, and when it straightens that S, it accelerates. So for a long yeah, neck well, plesiosaur, they, they think they could probably do that. Yeah, so it's, I mean that that it's would holding go, the neck up, you know, like a swan from the base of the neck, holding it straight up in a swan position is, is where the problem comes in. They did have some vertical flexure, but just, um, you know, most most of the range of movements in like the last two-thirds of the neck, where it's the base of the neck going into the body, is relatively stiff. Well, I think that would make sense. But there was one paleontologist, I mean, I'm, I'm not familiar with a lot of, you know, formal, quote, peer-reviewed papers, on pleases her necks, et cetera. But the only source that I found that, you know, kind of hit the target was on uh, Adam Smith's plesiosaur website. And he was 
putting out as one of numerous possibilities the fact that it was like a trick thing where it was like, aha, I'm really a giant creature and hiding behind this small head and long neck type thing. So mm-hmm. that kind of like hit the, the, the target, let's say. Yeah. But the actual reasoning behind the development of the evolution of all these cervical vertebrae, this, this long fishing rod, as I like to call it, um, is, has to do with not the animal itself, but has to do with its primary forage base, which, of course, as we know, is fish. And cephalopods. Yes. So these animals are basically swimming along, and they're hunting other marine animals, small marine animals, obviously from the size of their heads. Their teeth and jaws are not designed to crush and sever and chop things into pieces. They're to impale like fish hooks. Yeah. Well, one factor that's important to this, too, is unlike a mosasaur or a lizard or a snake, plesiosaurs could not dislocate their bottom jaw to eat prey larger than their head. They either had to prey on items that were the same size as their head and mouth, or they had to grab a hold of a larger chunk of meat and twist it off like a crocodile does. Yeah, and that last one I would find highly unlikely because those teeth are like such needles. I think that they would not stand up too well to torquing force you know what I'm saying, when the animal was trying yeah. to do something like that. You get a lot of, there'd be a huge, a lot, a lot of tooth loss there. But yeah. so, so basically, I focused on the animal's prey. And being a passionate angler who's been on the water and seen more fish than most marine biologists, um, the key factor for me was the fact that fish possess what's called a lateral line. And the lateral line, for those who don't know out there, is basically a series of sense organs that run along the fish's body pretty much from the back of the gills almost all the way to the end of the tail. Mm -hmm. And this lateral line detects movements and vibrations in the water around the fish. Exactly. It's like sort of like a line of foramina that we'll be talking about later. But uh, so if you you notice, like when you see a school of fish doing what's called – Murmuration, the, the entire school is able to all change direction at the same time. And the reason they can do that is because of their lateral line. They're able to keep equidistant from each other. They sense where the other fish is without having to look at them. This like also a helps. Of birds. Exactly. Murmuration. So yeah. this type of flocking behavior is, and the reason why they don't crash into one another if the school gets frightened, let's say, and knock each other senseless, et cetera, is because they have that lateral line. So that lateral line is their biggest defense also against approaching objects <clears throat> like predators, like a shark or a grouper or a barracuda, whatever is coming at them, let's say. So this, of course, would have included plesiosaurs. Pause for station identification. So anyway, I'm sorry, I'm not used to just rambling nonstop. So the, my, my notion was that when you see a large animal like a plesiosaur, it's eating just like you said. It can't swallow things bigger than its head, correct? Right. Hello? I think we might have lost Scott. Oh, okay. Okay, well then I guess I'll yeah. just keep rambling. Maybe his, his oh. phone died. I'll uh, um, call back in here in a minute and we'll just bring him right back in. Cool. So basically the... The, the plesiosaur is not able to eat a large prey item. It's therefore forced to rely on preying on small items, 
fish and cephalopods, like Scott said. And these are not big meals. So if you're a plesiosaur and you've got, I mean, let's say you're an enormous one, like a Lasmosaurus, and you're 45, maybe even 50 feet long, and you're swimming along, and you're going to eat something the size of your head, and your head is only, I don't know, two feet long at most, and you've got a, a 10 or 12 ton body, a little fish that weighs five pounds is not going to be sufficient for a 10 ton animal. And chasing down a little fish like that one at a time is also going to be counterproductive because you're not going to be able to get enough calories to make for the calories you burned pursuing that fish. Does that make sense? Yes. Makes total so, sense. You, Welcome back. Can you guys hear me? Oh, there you yeah. are. Yeah, <laughs> my, my phone went dead for a second. I don't know what happened. I had to call back in. Yeah, well, thank gosh. Back. Lost yes. the signal somehow. I don't know. We missed you. So. Yeah. Um, so basically, I'm sorry, Scott. Yeah, I was uh, oh, go ahead. Co- covering about the idea that, you know, one small fish, like a five-pound fish, would not be enough of a meal for a 10-ton Elasmosaurus. So the animal would want to reduce its energy output automatically and would want to feed on numerous small fish at a time since it can't eat anything larger than its head to begin with. Yeah. So this is where the neck comes in handy and where that lateral line spells the the difference, let's say, in terms of evolution. So if you think about it the way I portrayed it, and in fact the, the test that we'll be discussing in a minute, the plesiosaur basically would be swimming along and it would see a school of fish, and it would come up behind that school. Now the school, of course, is going to see this huge thing coming at them. They're going to get alarmed and they're going to turn and they're going to start to uniformly swim away. And this is where the long neck comes in as an advantage because now the plesiosaur or elasmosaur, whichever you want to use, is behind the school. They do not have eyes in the back of their heads. And the lateral line tends to start to fade out at around the tail. So by putting itself at their six in military terms, the plesiosaur now is sort of like below the radar, let's say. You know, their Mm -hmm. lateral lines come out a little bit past the tail, Okay, but so now it comes up behind them, it gets closer and closer. And mm-hmm. that small head is now identified by them as just another member of the school. One now, advantage the, that the plesiosaur has over the fish, it has binocular vision too. So it's able which to target gives it an its advantage. Right. Yeah. So now if you think about it, you're the school fish and you're swimming along, and you sense your fish to your left, right, up, down, sideways, they're all around you. You sense one more fish coming up behind you. It's not an alarming thing. It might be a smidgen bigger than the average fish in the school, but there are probably fish that size in the school anyway. So it doesn't really have an alarmed response. It's not setting off any, like, bells or whistles that say, like, oh, my God, there's a predator coming, as if, like, a huge shark came up behind them, or if the plesiosaur did not have that giant neck putting its head out there. So the pressure wave that the plesiosaur's body generates is not felt by the fish. All they feel is the pressure wave generated by that head that's way up there, up front. Yeah, well, that's probably one reason that these super long-necked elasmosaurs evolved that long neck is to keep the head away from the body. Right, and they were the biggest. So they would need the longest necks, if you think about it, in order to target their prey. See, if if you have a body... Neck vertebral counts the longest to 72, and that's opposed to the shortest for a pliosaur. I think it's Brachyshanius only had 13 
cervical vertebrae. So I believe it's Elasmosaurus platyurus that had 72. That, that sounds right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this, this is the secret, though, to this long neck. You know, you, this animal is able to swim up behind there, and he's effectively invisible to these other fish. They're used to fish their size. Now, if you think about it, they get accustomed to that. It's distinctly possible that their lateral lines automatically disconnect, let's say, are not alarmed by something in their size range because it's detected as the school. It's like you, I, or Julie might wear a watch or a bracelet or a necklace. You feel when you first put it on, but then your body adapts to it and your nerves ignore it. Otherwise, you'd be, like, scratching at your wrist all day. You wouldn't be able to wear pants. You know, I mean, I got enough trouble doing that one time. But anyway, the point is is that... The brain so, prioritizes. There you go. So the, the nerves are, like, desensitized. The alarm does not go off when something its size approaches it. And this is, enables the plesiosaur to come up there. It just swims up behind the school. It either accelerates just enough to snatch one of the stragglers in the back and then drop back a little bit while still pacing the school. You know, they might go, like, what was that? Where's Freddy? You know, when, it, when a fish disappears. But by and large, they just continue swimming. And this way, the fish is effectively almost like gra- a cow grazing on grass. It has hundreds or even thousands of prey items in front of it. It follows the school along, picking off, picking off, picking off, picking off, picking off, until it's had its full. And then it veers off, and it's had its day. See? But there's another thing that, I mean, I didn't even cover to a lot of extent, like when they did the press release on this, is that when you think about the pressure wave that's generated by a plesiosaur, it's not just the body. You know, I mean, and these bodies can be large. I mean, they're hydrodynamic or not. Okay, yes, that body is, is big, and it puts out a big pressure wave itself. Okay, but it's mm-hmm. also the flippers. I mean, think mm-hmm. about it. At the front of the body, you've got these two large pectoral fins or flippers that are churning away to generate movement, okay? So with that, all, all that going on, if there mm-hmm. wasn't a long neck putting that small head way out front, any fish would sense that animal coming up behind it from a mile away. Yep, you've got four flippers creating mm-hmm. movement in the water, which is creating water pressure waves. Yeah, so they're displacing that, all this in water. In addition to the yeah. body, yeah. So, I mean, effectively, the, the pressure for this long neck to evolve for this plesiosaur morph body type, it, it was a practical necessity. It had to evolve. I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're plesiosaurs and you're, you're young plesiosaurs, I'll say, and you had a longer neck than your pod mates, assume they lived in pods like whales. Well, the ancestral plesiosaur had a long neck. Right. So if you Plyosaurs ate better. Plesiosaurs mm-hmm. had a neck cervical vertebrae reduction. It's like, it's like they, they they went in two different directions. One group developed longer necks, and another group shortened the neck for different, you know, different reasons. Ecological yeah. niches, different you know, uh, hunting approaches, and diets. I just think that the long neck genes just got passed on. The more the ones that had the longer neck, even a slightly longer neck, would pass on their genes because they would eat better, breed better, yeah. pass them on, et cetera, and eventually the long neck just became, it was a practical necessity. With a pliosaur, mm-hmm. you're talking about an animal that's probably a much faster swimmer, probably more agile in the water, more like a giant sea lion almost or something, and was an mm-hmm. expert at you know, hunting things down, pursuing them, or pursue predator, ambush predator possibly, et cetera. 
But, you know, the theory is also supported by if we do a comparison, let's say, between plesiosaurs and today's sea turtles. If you look at the sea turtle, which also has large flippers in the front, right by the head and neck, like a plesiosaur would do. These are for propulsion, obviously. Yes, yeah. I mean, the plesiosaurs, we know they have four. But I think the ones further back are not going to be as big of a problem for pursuing a fish as the body and the flippers up front. That's creating a lot of turbulence yeah. up there, and more of a pressure wave. Okay, so Well, the, the back flippers on a, on a uh, sea turtle are primarily used in steering, and the reason they have a functional set of back legs with toes on them is because they're still tied to the land to lay eggs. And they have to use those back legs to slide around on the beach and also bury the eggs. That works for me, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, well, if we look at the sea turtle from in terms of it, its neck length, okay, almost mm-hmm. every sea turtle we know of, with the possible exception of Gary Lamada's sea monster, that beast that you know we've discussed and I even did a, mm-hmm. an article on, but they have short necks. Sea turtles, however, yeah. don't need long necks to reduce the pressure waves that their bodies generate because, for the most part, their prey is relatively slow. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, they have powerful jaws, but they're eating crabs, jellyfish, leatherbacks, mollusks. almost feed exclusively on jellyfish. And they're they the fastest too. of them. Yeah, they're the fastest yeah. out there at 22 miles an hour, but they eat jellyfish, which are not exactly, they're like the slugs of the sea in terms of speed. Yeah. So if you're eating seaweed, which a lot of sea turtles eat, sea cucumbers, cuttlefish, soft coral, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the, the loggerhead is the most carnivorous of sea turtles, and it may snatch up an occasional fish or eat its own hatchlings, but even those are not very fast. I mean, a big yeah. sea turtle would certainly catch a baby. So. When you look at this, you see that they're basically all feeding on relatively slow or immobile targets. Mm. So that shows you they don't have a need for an elongated neck, because if they did, they would still have it. Their ecological niche is targeting things that don't require a stealthy approach. You were able to use the South American long-necked turtle Shelodina as a proxy to test Mm -hmm. your theory. Yes, and that worked out remarkably well. In fact, if people go on to the com website under the blog post there, um, or you can just look up, uh, I think it's called Plesiosaur Necks. Um, I don't remember the name of it. Let why So Long? Or, here. Uh, I've done so many. I'm Plesiosaur sorry. Necks, Why So Long, Part 2, Testing the Theory. Okay, great. So, yeah, if they go there on the website, it's only a few articles back. So if you hit the blog and you just back up a few, you'll see it right there. Um, But basically the idea was we wanted to test out the idea of would a long neck enable an animal to hide, to conceal its body, the pressure generated by its body, from a living fish. So there's actually two videos on there that verify the theory from both perspectives, whether when the neck is and the head are about the size of the fish or when they, they're much, much bigger, and it doesn't work. So we were able to taste, test both ends of the hypothesis, playing devil's advocate. So in the first footage on there, you'll see a decent-sized goldfish, which was remarkably agile. I, I was very impressed when I saw it. And this snake-necked turtle comes str- sees the goldfish and comes straight at him. I mean, he's like, this is dinner. And the goldfish watches the turtle come at him. At the last second, he just dodges him like a bullfighter dodging a bull and totally sidesteps the turtle. And this is a goldfish, mind you, which tells you that, obviously, a marine fish 
which would be dealing with a much more predator-rich environment, is much more agile, would easily be able to do that. I mean, it would be effortless. Okay? So now the turtle realizes he's missed. He swims around, right around, and he sees now the goldfish is sitting there with its back to him. He comes up right behind it. He gets a decent amount back. His head and neck extends towards it. The goldfish does not sense him, and then he strikes. Boom. Mm-hmm. And he's got his dinner. Okay? So it shows you right there that head, which was not significantly larger than the goldfish, did not put out that big pressure wave that which would have alarmed the goldfish. I'm sorry, when the turtle approached, did not alarm the goldfish and make him run for the hills. Okay? On the other side, there's another video footage in there where there's another turtle, and this one was offered a bunch of little neon tetras. Now, the tetras are tiny compared to the goldfish, and the turtle's head, which was maybe, he had a hard time swallowing that goldfish. So his head might have been 50% bigger than the, the goldfish. With the tetras, his head is 10 or 20 times the size. So his head alone would be like if you were a, I don't know, a mackerel swimming along, would be like a, a big shark coming at you, just his head. See? Mm-hmm. So now this works out perfectly. You see the school of tetra there. The turtle comes right at them. They're looking right at it. You see them get alarmed. Boom. They all turn the opposite direction and take off. Okay? They stop when they figure they've fled a sufficient distance. But the turtle, of course, he's hungry and he keeps coming. Even with his head stretched out in front of him and his neck stretched out in front of him, he can't get within range. They sense him from the back from a mile away, and they just dodge him and dodge him and dodge him. And it's the same type of thing. You know, if a plesiosaur was trying to eat, I don't know, if you were an elasmosaurus, and your head was, let's say, two feet long, and you were trying to eat tiny fish that were three, four inches long, something like that, they would still sense you from the pressure wave your butt, your head generated, and they would scatter. But when he moves into the size range where the prey he's pursuing are 50, 75%, 80% the size of his head, or even as big as his head, they, to them, he's just, his head is just a number member of the school, their defense system basically shuts down, and he's able to nail them, boom, 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 boom. So the turtles really proved it for me 100%. And a paleontologist I know in the U.K., I showed it to him, and he said, you hit it right on the head, Max. Boom. Nobody well, I was able to um, grab some stills out of both of the videos and put them in the slideshow for this episode, so people awesome. will be able to see some of the images in the slideshow. Yeah, it's it, that. I mean, it's it's great stuff, Scott. I, I thank you and I thank Charles again. I mean, it, yep. it's just so compelling when you see it. Because I mean, honestly, I was trying to figure out a way where I was I was going to actually do a, a formal test myself. I mean, I spoke to several scuba divers, passionate divers, who saw my theory and they reached out to me and they said, "You're absolutely right, Max. We've been down there. We see it. It's like you know, they could swim up behind a school fish themselves and they would alarm the small fish. But if they take like let's say." Uh, the head of a spear gun in front of them or, you know, a small cam or something like that and extend their arm, the fish don't get alarmed. They can just pace them to do that. So they, you know, it was all, I mean, I was just trying to figure, okay, I'm going to talk to some of these guys that breed like trout and stuff like that for fish and game and stock them, and then I'm going to get like a, a replica pleases or a head and neck, and I'm going to climb in this pool with these fish, and I'm going to do all this stuff, and, you know, that would have been great, but the turtles saved me a lot of time, effort. Yeah. You know. Well, yeah, you're doing too. You're dealing with something alive mm-hmm. that's going to behave like a, you know, like like a Predator living animal would. Yeah. 
that you're going to be able to get data out of that you wouldn't be able to get from any kind of a computer model or anything like that. You know, it's the closest analogy we got. Until and it's we find a Nessie reptile. Whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, quote, marine reptile, but, you know, an aquatic reptile. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the fish, you know, is running for its life. Is It's, you know, lateral line is doing its job. You know, it doesn't want to get eaten. The fish turtle wants to eat him. He's, you know, it's, it's the same type of thing. You just scale it up a hundred times, and you've got your plesiosaur chasing a school of fish. Mm-hmm. I mean, mystery solved. And that's the game. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff, Max. I Thank don't you. think that turtles are able to dislocate their jaws either, so that's even better. Oh, oh he had a hard time know. swallowing that goldfish, yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of one of the snapping turtles I used to keep when I was a, a teenager and feeding it a huge fish and all that stuff. But, mm-hmm. yeah, so, I mean, I think we really put a, you know, I mean, there have been people who have talked about, you know, the, now what, I can touch on this for a minute or two. I don't know the, remember the names of the animals off the top of my head, but there's a, one or two plesiosaur species they found out there that are, quote, filter feeders. Oh, and they have the uh, Aristonectines and Mortonaria. You, know, you look at these animals and they say, well, that, like, you know, doesn't really go with the theory because of the fact that we theorize they're filter feeders, that they were, you know, sifting around in the mud and the sand on the bottom and stuff like that. You well, know, to, they think, to too, that they were swimming around eating shrimp and krill. Exactly. And that's exactly yeah. it. Because you have these long, delicate teeth, you're not going to be burying them in mud and rocks and things mm-hmm. of that nature, number one. Yeah. And number two, mm-hmm. you're leaving yourself exposed to a predator, yeah. and your life expectancy in the Cretaceous or even Jurassic seas is not going to be very long. So they yeah, had you've a, got to wonder how these vulnerable, long-necked animals were able to be so successful and persist with all these nasty predators around. Well, well I think first you've got for every plesiosaur out there, I mean, you know, you probably got a hundred plesiosaurs, you know, the long neck species. I mean, it's like wildebeest versus lions or something like that. You know, they're, that's that's the first thing. The second thing is that the or a mosasaur for that matter. Then you have these. Uh, I mean, they prey on different things. Yes, I mean, there obviously we've seen a lot of fossils where you've seen plesiosaurs have been killed by plesiosaurs and so forth. They're, they're, they always yeah. go for the head. Okay. The other thing is, is though, obviously these animals would aggressively defend themselves, and they may have had small heads, but they still had a mouthful of razor-sharp teeth. A pliosaur, mosasaur does not want to lose an eye, does not want to get badly injured. So when they did rush in to attack one, they went for the head and tried to crush the head, as opposed to what you would think of seizing the neck. Seizing the neck might still allow them to get bitten you know, and end up in an unpleasant situation. But yeah. You know, it's just uh, they were obviously successful because they were around for a hundred million years or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a it's a great body design. It's unfortunate we don't have them anymore. Yeah. Well, now the other blog you recently wrote was about the foramina sensory pits on the snouts of theropod dinosaurs, as compared to the sensory pits on. Crocodilians, and particularly Dinosuchus. You want to mm-hmm. explain some of that? Well, I, I kept seeing these press releases and these articles on social media and stuff saying, like, a 
T-Rex was a passionate lover. And they were saying that it had these, yeah, you know, into foreplay and stuff like this, you know. And I was like, oh, my God, really? Like, you know, it's like, I, it just, I cannot picture, you know, a Tyrannosaurus Rex coming up to a lady T-Rex and be like, hey, baby, what's up? Want a neck? You know this type of thing. I mean, more and more likely, you know, if she was receptive, he probably did the same thing a big cat would do: grabbed her by the nape to hold her still, you know, did his thing, and then got away before she got angry and decided she might have want to have him for dinner. Okay, but I mean, they they were talking about this, and the first thing that and this is all based on these pressure sensors, these sensory pits that you see in the lip regions and the lower jaw of Tyrannosaurus. That's how it came out, and everybody got, the, you know, people were pushing to get their name out there based on this, you know, romantic side of Tyrannosaurus Rex, which I guess is good for a press release to draw attention, you know, the calves of the Cretaceous, as I call them, and stuff like that. But uh, realistically speaking, you know, these four amina were developed by aquatic animals. We see them in crocodilomorphs, alligators, and crocodiles. Wildsaurs had them, too. Pliosaurs, like Pliosaurus cavani, there was a paper out about that by uh, Forrest, I believe, that discussed these aspects of it. And these animals have these pressure sensors in order to help them find and locate prey in murky water or under, even under cover of darkness. You know, they did tests, and I talked about this, I'm not sure if it was in the article or the press release, where an alligator, let's say, was put in complete darkness and from across a pool, far away, they took a, just a drop of water, boop, dropped that you know, into the surface there, and it put out these little ripples. And the alligator unfailingly turned in the exact direction where it came from. And this is by using the formula of the sensor pits on his face. In complete darkness, which shows you how sensitive they are and how accurate they are. Because it's not just one formula. There's so many of them. They're like little sonar emitters or receivers, and they're able to pick up and you know, dial in on something. Actually, crocodiles, believe it or not, have them all over their body, not just on their faces. For some reason, there's a difference between the two animal types. But anyway, moving right along. So now you're talking about Tyrannosaurus rex. And it's got these four amino on its face, and it's because it's the, you know, king of swing and, and uh, you know, all this other stuff, the Don Juan of uh, dinosaurs. And I, I wasn't buying that. I'm looking at this has got to have something to do with the water because these things function in the water. So logically, right, you know, I mean, I'm very deductive when it comes to these things. So the animal's putting its face in the water, and these sensors are there. Why would it be doing that? And if they don't eat fish. You know, Spinosaurus has these things all over its face, the entire snout, etc. T-Rex doesn't have them. It only has them on the upper lip and then the lower jaw, the chin, etc. So that means it's just that portion of its head is being immersed in the water effectively to bring those four amina, quote, online. In fact, if people go to the website and they look maybe that up it's also. Using them, maybe it was using them to watch out for dangerous things in the water when it went to drink. Exactly. And that's what the whole you know, article and press release covered is that, you know, as long as there have been dinosaurs, there have been things in the water that could kill and eat dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, unless you got to the point where you were like, you know, Sauroposeidon or, or Alamosaurus, where you were so enormous. And even then, you know, you, smaller versions were vulnerable. But theropods in particular, and I checked this out, 
Uh, my theory was that crocodilomorphs and before them, the animals that came, you know, in, in, I'm sorry, before crocodiles, which we'll get to in a second, um, they were always something in there to eat an unwary dinosaur. Okay, so phytosaurs. I'm sorry, I was yep. juggling thoughts. So the phytosaurs were basically like convergent evolution. It was like a, they existed first, and then crocodiles came along, and they had the same body plan, sort of the same mm. predator style of feeding, etc. So there's always been something in the water that could eat you. Now, if you're a theropod, and you go down to take a drink, okay, and I looked at videos, footage, and stuff of different flightless birds of today, the water-sized neck was the cassowary. And there's a great footage on the blog post an article talking about this on my site. And you see this cassowary. It goes to get a drink. It approaches the water. It looks around cautiously. It wades out a little bit cautiously. It looks, it looks, it looks. You know, the bird is paranoid, you know, and it should be. You never know yeah. if there's something in there that wants to jump up and make, you know, make a giant turkey dinner out of you. Okay? So <clears throat> when it goes to drink, it's up to about its shins in the water already. And that's because it doesn't want to have to lean so far down that it upends its balance. You see mm. what I'm saying? It can only go so far. So it's about, it leans forward, it scoops up to drink like a theropod would do, etc. It repeats, and it, it does its thing. So if you're a Tyrannosaurus or any other theropod, you're, you're going to drink the same way, basically. Now you're going to go to the edge of the water, you're going to look around at a paranoia, you're going to have to wait out a little bit, which I'm sure is very nerve-wracking, even if you're a big predator. You know, there may be something bigger mm -hmm. and badder in there, and you're going to get your drink. So the foramina for the crocodile, I mean, sorry, for the, for the, for the T-Rex or any other theropod, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying all theropods that I researched had these foramina. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, all of them. The, you know, the, well, the raptors, there was a gigantic 30-foot crocodile that, most likely ate dinosaurs called Dinosuchus mm -hmm. that went extinct about 73 million years ago. It was extinct before Tyrannosaurus rex came along, but it was contemporary with a couple of Tyrannosaurids called Gorgosaurus and Daspletosaurus. Which chose to show you the, uh, there, there's always been something. But we know that there were big crocodiles, even though they haven't found fossils yet, so to speak, that all the way to the end of the Cretaceous, because crocodiles survived the KT extinction. Well, yeah, so, there were gigantic, monstrous crocodiles way up into the age of mammals after the dinosaur extinction. Yeah. So you're, if you're now a theropod, we're gonna, I'll stick with T-Rex for, for the sake of the argument, or I mean the, the, yeah. the article, I'm sorry. When you put your face in the water, those foramina now are sensing what's in the water around you. And this is very useful because not all water is nice and clear, nor is it necessarily shallow. You know, there's drop-offs, et cetera. And you're not going to necessarily see something coming at you, especially since crocodiles tend to approach their prey, you know, from a distance. They spot it, then they submerge completely, then they start, they come very slowly towards it. They don't really make much of a ripple. You know, they get as close as they kind of eyeball it, and they lunge up like with a wildebeest or something, and they go for the kill. So with a T-Rex... You have these four amina that are these little sonar things, like an alligator, and you can sense this thing coming toward you. You can feel the pressure wave of its body moving through the water, and that gives you a second or two warning to back up and get ready to fight for your life, whatever you want to do, to avoid getting grabbed. Because when a Tyrannosaurus leaned forward like that, he's at his most vulnerable. 
his center of balance is shifted way far forward, and there's an illustration of this on the site also, and he's an easy target for a big enough crocodilomorph. So once you get grabbed, I mean, you can be the biggest Tyrannosaurus in the world. I mean, Dinosuchus, you know, was estimated at one point at uh, 50 feet at one point. Now they're saying it's in the upper 30s, possibly 40, I think I've heard estimates, et cetera. If Dinosuchus was not extinct when T-Rex was around or another species of crocodile was, which I would believe, or even if it was just 20 and 25-foot crocs that were feeding on small rexes, they would all still need those formina, those sensor pits, to keep them from ending up as prey. And well, we've got a, 21-foot crocodiles right now. There you go. Oh. And they haul in sometimes big buffalo. So, And yep, if a Tyrannosaurus yep. is grabbed by the face, by the muzzle, by the throat, and dragged off its feet, and now he's in the water, usually you're not just dealing with one crocodile. I mean, you guys have seen Nachio and all these, you know. A zebra uh-huh. gets grabbed by a Nile croc, and there's 20 more waiting there. And they yep. all jump on them, and they rip them to pieces. Death rolls yep. left and right, you know, which mm-hmm. you know, is a horrible way to go. So even the biggest, baddest, I mean, it's quite possible that the largest T-Rexes, for example, were obviously, I would say, the least vulnerable to attack. But you know, if we look at the fossil record, we know that most Rex skeletons that have been found have bite punctures on their muzzles, their faces, their skulls, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I've spoken to some paleontologists about this and asked, you know, are they all from interspecies conflict? And I've been told several times it's really impossible to differentiate punctures between a big crocodile's teeth versus that of another tyrannosaur. Another paleontologist... Well, teeth are very similar. Right. So, you know, I mean, it could be interspecies conflict, et cetera, but it could also mm-hmm. be, and there's something else that goes along with this, is that just about every tyrannosaur skeleton that's been discovered has come from what we now know were riverine environments. You know, mm-hmm. the shores or in rivers. Is that a coincidence? You know, a lot Maybe of these skeletons not. are and a lot of these skeletons are incomplete. You know, they're missing legs, they're missing this, and which is mm-hmm. also the hallmark of crocodiles feeding and when they mm-hmm. rip things apart. See? So it is finding the remains of were actually preyed upon by gigantic crocodiles. I mean they're in the right area. You know, you go to a river for a drink of water. You die in that river. How did you die? Did you just drown? Did you get? Right. Were they all caught in mudslides or flash floods or something like that? You know, well, and most also of the Mesozoic, the climate was a lot warmer, so you had crocodiles living in places like Montana, Wyoming. They had a much wider distribution because of the warmer climate than they do today. Oh, I, I would bet you that wherever you had. Yeah, you know, yeah, they were they were all over the place. I mean, well, yeah, you, Canada, you know, they're during the latter part of the Cretaceous, there wasn't even ice up in the Arctic and the Antarctic for the most part. So you would have had crocodiles living up probably at the North Pole. Yeah, I, I know they were found in Alaska. Mm-hmm. I to me. Period. It's like I look at the Tyrannosaurus rex, and we know, especially they just found, well, not found, it was found years ago, but they just put the information out. You know, they've upped the size of the species now. Now they found one that was the oldest to date, which was a full 13 meters long, I believe, the skeleton, and also the oldest Tyrannosaurus. I think they said it was around 30 years old from Canada. So you look at this, and you, and you, you see that these animals, you know, first off, we're seeing that we're not finding 
the biggest of the animals because you're not finding a lot of these skeletal remains. But it's likely that the larger specimens were not as subject to attack or less likely, let's say. You know, I, I remember seeing a video where a Nile crocodile was confronting a lioness or two on the shoreline there. And it was a confrontation between this Nile croc and these lionesses. And the crocodile was unfazed by the lionesses, and it, it looked like he was going to try and grab one of them. And then a huge male lion came over and got in right in the crocodile's, quote, face and was roaring at it, et cetera, and the crocodile actually backed down, literally, as a reptile, mind you. You would think they'd be mindless, but, you know, the combination of the lion being so much bigger and the mane made the crocodile think, okay, I want to take him on in the shallows here without 20 of my buddies. You know? So, right. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. And, I mean, I picture a big T-Rex fording a river, crossing a river, okay, would be, you know, on high alert. I mean, let's just say that for argument's sake that the water was only 8 or 10 feet deep, which is up to the animal's chest probably or something. Mm -hmm. Now, he's got to be, even if it's up to mid-thigh or just up to his belly, his or her belly, you know, they got to be crossing that river real slowly, looking side to side, you know, paranoia out the wazoo. I mean, you know, you're, you're taking your life and your, your, your talons or whatever you want to call it, you know, even if there's a bunch of them in a group. You know, so I did a useful comparison, though, um, comparing the Nile crocs interactions with big cats, not just Nile crocs, modern crocodiles, I should say, as compared to T-Rex and other theropods with primeval crocodiles. And you see the same type of thing on land, whether it's the Bengal tiger. And by the way, not just recently, a year or two ago, a big Bengal tiger male was killed by a 15-foot saltwater crocodile. That's you know also covered in my uh, in my article. But uh, you know you have lions. The African lion is the quote king of the Serengeti, but when he goes down to take a drink of water, he has to be extremely careful. And whenever you see these footages, this, these foot, I'm sorry, this, the footage of lions, let's say, drinking, usually you see them in groups. You know, they all get down together at the river edge there. They're all lapping up water. And then an alarm goes off. But, uh, and you see there, their eyes are all, like, as a group on the water. You know, they're on high alert. And their whiskers are just, like, touching the water. Now, the whiskers of these animals are very, very sensitive. And they, I mean, they're able to detect pressure changes in the air. They use them for, you know, a house cat can judge whether it can fit somewhere based with its whiskers, et cetera. Like, they're like little radar emitters, practically. Mm-hmm. So the same thing applies with the, the cat's whiskers are the equivalent of the Tyrannosaurus foramina in terms of sensing an approaching threat in the water. And a tiger, mm-hmm. which is a solitary cat and doesn't have the advantage of multiple members of the pride all on the lookout while drinking together, okay, the tiger has even bigger whiskers that dip deep down into the water while he's drinking. And he needs those whiskers in order to avoid getting grabbed, caught off guard, and pulled in and fighting for his life. Well, now they're saying that, that most of these theropods had feathers or feather-like structures. So it's possible even T-Rex might have had some kind of whisker-like appendages on its snout coming out of these electrosensors. I guess it's possible. I don't. I mean, I that don't know. That we haven't found preserved as soft tissue. 
you know. Yeah, I, I would tend to think that the, the you would have the absence of it on. I mean, I, I know what they, you know, the researchers thinking, but if you think about it, when you look at animals that are like birds that are predators like that you know, storks and, and vultures and things like that that are burying their heads in prey, they don't have a lot of feathers on their face. A lot of times they're just plain bald. Well, they I mean, have that's... a specialized beak, though, that oh, the T-Rex yeah. doesn't have. Well, the T-Rex has a specialized set of jaws that are the most powerful of any land predator. So yeah. I'm just saying is that I wouldn't think that they'd have a lot of feathers on their face because their face, they'd be constantly getting ripped well, off. Well, I'm not really them. talking about feathers. I'm talking about more like... Like a whisker. Some birds, like, the, yeah, yeah, sort of like a, a hair, you know. They've like like Sonosauropteryx and some of these Chinese dinosaurs mm-hmm. don't really have full-blown feathers. They have more like, it looks like hair, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, anything's possible. But, I mean, at the end of the day, what, I think what we're dealing with, we can safely conclude that those four amina were there, I mean, for immersion in the water. I mean, I did a comparison mm. on my article where I took Spinosaurus's skull and a T-Rex skull. I got them the mm. exact proportion and size to each other. You see all the four amino on them. The rexes are all on the, uh, from the upper lip down and don't even go to the back of the jaw, really. So it's like he's, if he angles his head as if he was drinking and dips it down, they perfectly cover all this four amino, as opposed to Spinosaurus, who has four amino all the way up to his eyes. So he's designed to have his head completely in the water or just the eyes popping out like a crocodile while able to sense mm. everything around him. So there's no need for the Tyrannosaurus to put his whole face or head in the water to have those sensors working, let's say. Another strong indicator that you know, this theory makes sense. Oh, and I, before I, I don't ramble, I'm, I'm so sorry, but and when we were talking about whiskers and everything, what you were saying, I also researched walruses, for example. And mm-hmm. if you want whiskers, and you want whiskers that are in the water, I mean, these guys are the kings. I mean, they're like the Santa Clauses of pinnipeds. And mm-hmm. walruses have between four and 700 whiskers. They call them vibrissae. And they, yep. these things are super sensitive. They're attached to muscles, supplied with blood and nerves, and they use these to seek out prey, even in complete murk. I mean, granted, they're they're eating shellfish and things like that. But yeah, the point they're is, digging around in the mud looking for clams and stuff of that nature. Right. So that's like a fully marine adapted version of a lion or a tiger's whiskers, fully submerged and designed for that purpose. You know, it all goes hand in hand. So the, I mean, this is a, a development that you see, and these formina have existed all the way back from the time of the phytosaurs before crocodiles existed, and when dinosaurs first came on the scene. Well, yeah, there was like, a group of aquatic reptiles that arose during the Cretaceous and or the Mesozoic and actually persisted through the extinction event way up into the age of mammals called Champsosaurs and Charistodeers. They were very crocodilian, but they gave live birth in the water, and they weren't technically crocodilians. They were a different group of reptiles that were just convergent with crocodiles. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. think that as long as there's been you know water to drink and things on land that have gone to the water to drink, you've always had to worry, is there something in the water that you're going to have to worry about? You know, mm-hmm. Ambush predators, well, they, that's their niche. You know? well, and, you've, and, hit, you've hit on the very reason why I don't go swimming here in Florida. 
Why not, Scott? Not unless it's a pool. Having I even checked a, the pool to see if there's an alligator crawled in it. Having yeah. had a personal encounter with a crocodilomorph, morph, sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied, you know, a modern-day archosaur, if you want, okay, and having it try to eat me, okay, I can tell you that I've seen their formina up close and personal, and it's oh, wow. not a pleasant sight with all those teeth surrounding it. Okay? This is when you were fishing with your father, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, we got about ten minutes left. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, if you, I don't want to bore the readers. Well, I mean, people always talk about you know the the realism that goes into the Cronus Rising novels and you know all the excitement, et cetera. And you know, there, there's a popular saying that you know the best writers can draw from personal experience. And I've had many experiences on under the water, dry land, et cetera. But the alligator incident, which was totally unexpected, to be perfectly frank. I mean, gave me not only the benefits of, how can I say this, um, how it felt like to be attacked by a predator, by a, a big reptile that wants to lunge out and eat you. You know, also the fear factor that goes with that. You know, there is a, a primal fear that you feel, you know, trying to, like, rise up. You know, something wants to eat you. But um, it's, it's, it's a while now. I mean, my... my uh, wife was pregnant with Ava at the time, so we were down in the Kissimmee area, and we stayed at a development there. We had a rental property. I think the lake was called Lake Bentley, if I'm not mistaken. I could be mistaken. It's been a while, but it wasn't a huge lake. I think it was like 12 or 14 acres. And uh, you know, when we were checking in and all that, uh, one of the employees said, oh, be careful. There's a, uh, you know, a, a gator in there, and uh, we haven't been able to get him out. And I'm like, okay, no problem, you know. You know, we didn't see him. You know, we fished the uh, few hours one day, didn't see anything. The next day, we were around the back of the lake in a more shallow region there, and uh, we were we had gotten hit on a nice school of tilapia, blue tilapia, big, beautiful fish, and we were just hauling them in and letting them go, hauling them and letting go one at the right. You know, I mean, me, the old man, standing there at the edge of the water, and... You know, we're fishing and fishing and fishing, and I guess, I don't know if it was the blood or the thrashing or what, but this alligator decided he'd found a potential meal. So um, my dad was to my left, and I'm looking, and all of a sudden, I see this big log coming toward me. And, you know, I wasn't looking at it. Like, you know, I just, Adam, it was, and this log is coming straight towards me, and I'm thinking, wow, that log is really moving, and it's not even windy, you know. And then I look down, yeah, and it's about... And I see that the log is self-propelled, and I see the jaws start to open. He's getting ready to take a shot, and I see the teeth, you know. Now, having lived in New York for many years, you heard stories about alligators, you know what I mean? I mean, we ran them over actually a few times in Florida on the boats fishing and stuff, but accidentally. So anyway, so I went, whoa, and I sprang back. You know, like, like in boxing, you see somebody like spring back like that or martial arts instinctively to give myself extra space. And I was like, Dad, watch out for the gator. And he's like, huh? Like this. And then he moved to look, and I saw the alligator's head turn toward him. And I'm like, uh-oh. You know, they can sense when something's more vulnerable. The alligator attacks you see in Florida are typically on children and old people. Mm. Most of them, see? So he's now cornered. And my dad had been recovered from a heart attack recently, and he's like 80 years old at the time. And he was like, had this, the hill behind him was so steep. There was no way he could climb up it, 
and he was basically trapped. It was that, and there was a, a big sewer drain. He wasn't going to go in the water and go in that. He would have been even worse trouble. You know, so he wasn't going anywhere. And I was like, oh, God, oh, God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, and, you, you, you know, you have this impulse, like, you know, your brain says you've got to run away. And then, you're, I mean, and then the rest of you says, well, that ain't happening. You know, you're not eating my dad on right. my watch, you know. So I don't have any weapons. So the only thing that I had handy was a fishing net, a landing net that I <clears throat> borrowed from Walmart. Um, and when I say borrowed, I would, you know, use this thing for the week and then clean it up and return it. That was my plan until this happened, of course. So anyway, so I grab the fishing net, and as the gator goes to make his move, I jump up and I crack him over the head with the fishing net right before he sprang at my dad's leg. And I don't know if wow. I hit him in the eye or something like that. Yeah, it was, it, Julie, it felt like hitting concrete. You know, I felt a shock oh up the shock up the net. Oh, my God. Aluminum net right up the, into my arm. And, but I must have got him in the eye or something like that, you know, pissed him off, and he splashed back into the water. <laughs> and then he went, disappeared, and then he serviced a minute later, not even, about 30 feet out, I guess, at least 20, maybe 30 feet. And he was facing us, and I saw these two eyes, you know. And alligators can roar. They make this sound during mating season or when they're angry. And you heard this sound. It was like, like that. And I went, oh, no. I went, here it comes. And I had a digital camera, which is why we have a few pictures of it, even though they're totally off-center and somewhat out of focus. And I tossed it to my dad. I said, Dad, I said, take pictures of this. I said, this is going to be good. So the thing charges oh me. Yeah, he didn't want my dad this time. He wanted me. Oh. Okay. He came straight at me, tail flailing to build up speed and stuff. And I met him halfway. He had just come halfway out of the water when I jumped him. And I was, like, beating him with the net and, he, and dodging bites. So I'm like, bam, bam. There was some colorful expletives flying around to be honest and stuff you know and he was chomping at me he turned the net into a pretzel i mean it was like this whole big thing and my dad's like he's like that's it max take it to him watch the teeth oh you know? like, i'm like don't distract me you know? i'm like trying to not get grabbed and pulled in you know yeah. and stuff and you know i finally must have hit him so many times i don't know if it was eight or ten times i whacked him over the face and stuff <laughs> that um, you're too much trouble uh, wait, and then he backed up into the water. And now, the son of a gun, he's like sitting there and watching us from like 15 feet away, something like that. And every time we caught a fish, he would try and steal it. At first, it was nerve-wracking to begin with. You have a couple hundred pounds of owl hungry alligator sitting there eye- eyeballing. You're giving you a side eye, you know, as they say. Well, hey, and, we're out of time. Oh. Uh, oh, we got You can go ahead right. and finish it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, he must have stolen six or eight big fish. And then he just, he was so full, he swam into the shallows, like right next to me practically, put his chin on the embankment, and lay there in the sun, fearlessly basking. I mean, like, I could have touched him. I took pictures from five feet away. You know, so anyway, it was exciting. But I I don't get no closer than 15 feet. Wow. (laughs) Well, I figured he'd had his fill already. Yeah, but you know. Just listening to that story. He also well, tried to eat neighbor's dog. I mean, it was like this whole big thing. He was a troublesome alligator. Thank you for coming on. Max. It was my pleasure, guys. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And make sure you, you let people know if they want to get a copy of the book to check out the new website and stuff. There's a paleo yep. gallery on there, free excerpts from the novels, the whole nine yards, maxhawthorne.com. Yep. That's awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Well, Scott, thank you yep. for... 
Welcome back mm-hmm. for another episode of The Haunted Sea with Scott Martis. And we will be back again next month to bring you some more. Did you ha- have a special guest coming up next time, Scott? Uh, Charles Pogan. Awesome. Okay, great. That's yep. awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll have a great day. Good night. Bye-bye. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.